Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 124. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mysteries. And suspense. I always want to say suspenders for some reason. <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's, it's just a bit that, worrying. Some it's sort that, of foidling thing. It's that impish side to you isn't it well yes i do have it well you do too oh i do very much yeah indeed welcome to the show and our guest this week is kim booth who is a retired detective inspector and author Uh, he was a detective inspector with lincolnshire police has covered all manner of different uh, areas of crime and he's been on the telly he has and (laughs) uh, it's a really good interview I, i think it's particularly um important to Listen to what Kim says about his feelings about the way that crime writers sometimes play fast and loose with the reality of what actually happens in the detective. So you're doing a police procedural. You really need to know the Police and Criminal Evidence Act as a very minimum. Yeah, and it's, it was interesting, wasn't it, that he said that actually that that body, that piece of lit, um, literature, Leg- <laughs> legislation... <laughs> yeah. And I can remember, so it came out in the 90s, didn't it? So um, I was an editor and I did some freelance editing for OUP in the law department in the um, early 2000s. And so that was still a big deal. And a lot of the law books were about the reaction to pace. Um, so, yeah, and, and Kim was saying, just read that and that will give you a really solid grounding on how things are done. Absolutely. And he acts as a consultant as well. If you need support with your writing for your crime fiction, then he is a consultant. Uh, So we'll talk to Kim a little bit later. Let's get into, as we always do, some news. And I think the most important piece of news in the crime writing world is the appointment. And this is wonderful news. Friend of the programme, Vazim Khan, is the new chair of Crime Writers Association, he CWA. He is indeed, and there's a lovely photo of him smiling in the sunshine. He always smiles. I mean, look, he's just a really great guy, and um, he takes over from Maxim uh, Jakubowski, which uh, is, you know, no easy thing because uh, Maxim's done a good job. But the CWA is a really important facet of crime writing in this country, no question about that. I mean, it, it, you know, it binds us together a little bit yeah. and provides so much support for all authors in the in the field. And I think he's a good choice also, um, which he talks about in his article, which is in the CWA um, this month. Red Herring magazine. Yeah, so he's talking about his sort of business background as well and how he's going to bring his knowledge, but also bring his knowledge but not impose 
his knowledge yeah. and his experience from that. Well, let, let's, let me read some of what he's, he's said here. Um, now, we were going to invite him onto the show just to talk about it, but in fact, he's in New York at the moment, in Toronto, I think he's been at a crime uh, festival. There is a, yes, because Orenda are there as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's on his travels and, you know, you will you turn up to any festival, that seems likely to be there. I know. Does he ever stay at home, no, this I don't guy? Know. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, let, let's put some, some flesh on the bones here. I was a management consultant for many years, he says. My job was to go into organisations and find out what worked, what didn't, and fix things, sometimes by heaving people out of a window. <laughs> Nobody on the current CWA board needs to panic. I'm not going to pretend that the CWA is perfect. Our resources are stretched, our admin systems are occasionally creaky, and sometimes we make mistakes. We know this. We also understand that any diverse collection of people can never agree on everything but that's okay we wouldn't be a very vibrant organization if we all said yes to but each other all the time i but, think that's a really important point actually yeah and in the light of what happened at crime fest very well put if you think we're contentious come to a big fat asian wedding in my family <laughs> i'd love to yeah it's easy to criticize the cwa for what it isn't but here's what I believe the CWA is or should be. This is my vision for the CWA, if you will. So here's the important bit. The CWA should be a home for all crime writers, whether you've sold 10 million copies or 10. The CWA should be a place where writers of all backgrounds can come and know that they are treated with respect. A place where they won't be insulted, harassed, looked down upon or disregarded just because of who they are or because they haven't yet achieved things that others might have. The CWA should be a home to all forms of writers and others involved in crime writing, be they novelists, non-fiction writers, screenwriters, self-published authors, graphic novelists or crime writers whose medium is interpretive dance. I love that. <laughs> Most importantly, the CWA should be about inspiring the next generation of crime writers. I want to write a book in interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to be the victim? Uh, no. <laughs> You do plenty of interpretive dance around the house anyway. Um, and then finally, I, I like this this uh, final paragraph. When I was published almost a decade ago, I didn't know anyone. I was a minority in an all-white industry. I was told by my agent to join the CWA, and suddenly I felt less alone in an industry that can be truly frightening and confusing, especially for newbies. If I've had any writing success today, it's because I've had the support of friends and well-wishers, especially through the difficult times. That's what I want the CWA to be. And if there's anybody who's going to deliver on that, it is Absolutely. Nassim. And I, I, I concur on that on the CWA. We joined it shortly after we um, became Hobeck. And not only some of our authors have come to us through the CWA, but we've made so many friends through that organisation. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it is very... It, it is a brilliant organisation. I mean, it does have its fault lines, but, I mean, Vaz will – he's so brilliant with people, and I think he will steer the ship through those waters in difficult times, and I think he's right. You know, we're not all going to agree, but we have to respect each other, uh, you know, points of view as well and not be homogenous. So uh, there's nobody better – to do so and so good uh, luck yeah good luck Vaz and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again very soon I'm sure at an event uh, which is terrific I think um, this is this is really good news we've got some Hobeck news which we'd like to share with you as well we, we do indeed we have a new signing we do indeed and 
And so that we have, um, we've been bubbling along with this person, but we finally signed a contract with Julie Anderson from Clapham. Do you remember episode 108? Of course you do. When we talked to Julie about the Clapham Literary Festival, her own writing and the power of Clapham as an area of London and its literary connections. Well, well we started talking straight, we did. almost immediately afterwards. And Julie, Julie said to us, well, actually, I've written a historical crime fiction novel and I wonder whether you take take a look. Um, she said she'd sent it to a few other publishers and we said, yeah, send it along because we were open at the time or just about to or I can't remember. Um, and I read it first and I gobbled it. Well, I, it, I was slow to start because I was very busy and then I picked it up again one Sunday morning at about seven o'clock in the morning. I woke up early, picked it up and I raced to the end and emailed her straight away and said, Julie, I love it. And here we are. <laughs> we are going to be... Publishing The Midnight Man, set in Clapham at the South London Women's and Children's Hospital, which is uh, which was a feature of, of life there on the Overlooks the Common. Yeah. And uh, Julie's done an amazing job on the research. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, it's set, it's a historical uh, mystery novel, uh, suspense novel, and it is set just after the war, after the Second World War. Yes, and it's got a heavy female influence as well, which I love about it. Well, yeah. Obviously, it was a women's hospital, but... It's called The Midnight Man, and it's got a heavy female influence. But there you go. Well, you, yes. Well, uh, pe- people have to find out why by reading it. So we're thrilled to, <laughs> to, to have Julie join us, and um, she'll be a powerhouse within the Oh, Hobart absolutely. Family, she I'm comes sure. with a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, and a lot of connections. So. And um, uh, what else was I going to say? Um well, we're going to publish it in spring 24, so look out for that. Yeah, absolutely. So thrilled. So that's good news from Hobeck point of view. Find out more details. We've written a blog, which has just been published as yeah. this po- uh, podcast goes out. So check out our website, www.hobeck.net, for more details of Julie. Uh, so thank you for joining us. And we have some more stories. We, um, I wanted to touch on this next one, which is quite funny, really. Uh Ian Rankin, so Ian Rankin uh, tweeted this week that somebody had commissioned ChatGPT, the AI system, to write some chapters uh, in the voice of him, of Ian Rankin, mm-hmm. as Rebus. So, shall I read one? Just read. It's a very, very quick. It's only a couple Go of paragraphs. On, okay. Chapter one: The Silent Victim. Detective Inspector John Riley stepped out of his car onto the rain-soaked streets of Edinburgh. The misty air hung heavy with anticipation as he surveyed the crime scene before him. It was a cold and gloomy evening, befitting the grim discovery awaiting him in the heart of the city. The victim, a young woman in her mid-twenties, lay lifeless on the cobbled pavement. Her once vibrant red hair, now matted with blood, framed a face that bore the marks of a fierce struggle. Riley knelt down, careful not to disturb any potential evidence, and observed the tell-tale signs of violence that marred her delicate features. The onlookers were huddled together, their expression a mix of shock and fear. Their whispers filled the air, blending with the distant sounds of Edinburgh's bustling nightlife. Riley knew that beneath the surface of this picturesque city, darkness lurked, waiting to be revealed. That is actually quite depressing because if that was a submission, I would say get it in. That's really good. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, the I'm going to draw up the comments now that that uh, this inspired um, 
see that uh, that thing. Alex Walters writes, I love the fact that there's no actual plot there. Ian Rankin replies, quite. Hmm, I reckon you can sleep easy in your bed for a good bit longer. Rankin says, view. <laughs> nope, no vinyl, no Siobhan. True. Um, it's so flat, someone says. And then Ian Rankin replies, yeah, exactly. I liked it. <laughs> We should confess that. Look, that's ChatGPT uh, absorbing the work of previous readers' novels and then churning out a short story in six chapters. It's not. It's it's more. It's competent. Uh, well, it's, it's competent. It's actually not too bad. But we get. I'm sorry. My initial reaction was I haven't. I've only read one Ian Rankin book. No, I've read two Ian Rankin books, and one was the. Um, um, you know the one he recently did in the yes, dialogue. Yeah, which was which was Willie McIlvany's um, yeah unfinished and the book, other one, The Dark Remains. The other one was years ago. It was a book uh, reading group I belonged to. It was the book of the that we were reading, and I loved it. But I just just haven't you know become an Ian Rankin fan. So I don't know his style. So I don't know how closely that matches his style. Uh, it's not f- well. I I think there's a lot more. There is a little bit more flourish in in Ian's. Work. I mean, he does. He, he he does tell it straight, but there'll be a bit a bit more, you know, creativity involved. But but as a piece of writing itself, it, knowing that it was written by AI, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I think this proves what we've been saying in the last few weeks because there are a number of people in the independent industry who are actually using AI very extensively to shorten the process of writing and do you know what i think some of those comments are people because they, that, they can't be seen to be saying oh that's actually okay yeah that exactly well i think you know you you, you say you, it's a valuable thing you, you've added there because you know on the face of it if we were sent that we would think yeah they've got something and it could be chat gpt which i think now illustrates just how significant the impact i'm not saying threat because some people are treating it that way, the impact ChatGPT could have. So, I mean, there are plenty of people out there who are getting them to create plots, which they then, and actually the body of the text, and they just go in and and alter it. Mm. And then they can churn out a book in three days. That could be, you know, the unscrupulous are going to do that. Uh, You know, the people who, who, I mean, there's plenty of people on Amazon who are just banging out, low-grade books, getting somebody to write rubbish in a Indian sweatshop. But what's the difference between that and using a ghostwriter? Exa- well, to, yeah, I can see your point. Um, I mean, because a ghostwriter, you don't always know it's a ghostwriter. Well, you do if you look at the title, the copyright information, perhaps. Not always. But no, not no, no, always. No, so... no, 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 no. I mean, you no, know, I know. If you, it's... you pick up Katie Price's books, right? I'm not saying they're works of literature. But they are ghostwritten. Okay, so is that and, unscrupulous? And she, and she takes all the credit for it. Would you call that unscrupulous? I think it's disingenuous, yeah. I don't think it's unscrupulous because it's a long, long-established tradition. But, so what's the difference? Um, it's a very interesting philosophical point that is at the crux of the argument about uh, using AI in the creative industries. Look, we, as I said last week, are using Otter AI to create show notes from the interviews and yes it takes a bit of human effort in there to try and correct some of the mistakes for instance this week with kim because he's got a lincolnshire accent 
um, some of the words, like um, if you said uh, he says no comment quite a lot because we're talking about oh, we how, were talking about that yeah how interviews are conducted in 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 police situations, and he's advocating that you shouldn't say no comment because it makes you look guilty. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, they put no comment on the uh, Otter AI. Yeah, but that's... So that was the thing I had to correct because they just didn't understand. Because it's quite a soft ending of the word. But then other things, it got really, really... Um, that I didn't expect it to pick up. It did pick up and, and, and understood the context. And actually, what, what's really clever about it is it understands the difference between the different versions of there. That, yeah, and, it's and the, context then. It must yeah, be well, it, it's, it's actually very, very good at spotting when it should be they are. You know, the, there with yeah. the apostrophe yeah. R-E. Um, rather than over there. But these are two, you're talking about two very different uses of AI, though. I don't think you can compare them. No, okay. Look, I'm asking it to do some, a job that I would have to spend hours. It's a machine. As, it's acting like a machine. Fine. Yes, but the, that creative, you're quite right. That chat GPT thing is actually, it, it's, it's illustrative of just how strong it is already. And just, it's only going to get stronger and better and more, and, and, and you know, more flexible and creative in the future i i must i i part of me thinks and we were talking about this earlier and saying how loads of jobs are going to disappear but it, through time especially since industrial revolution we've had an amazing ability to adapt and find other areas of work or other um channels for the creative work or whatever it is because when when um at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when we started to automate things through machinery, people were saying, that's it. You know, it's, it's going to be the end for so many people. Their livelihood's gone. The same in the 80s with the closure of all the mines. And so yeah, but-, but you can't... Yeah, eventually. But, you know, you mentioned the mines. I mean, how many years did it take some of those... Some of them had never recovered, those communities where mining was the only income in the northeast or Nottinghamshire or wherever, um, you know, in Yorkshire. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not going to take time. You know, is 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 a warehouse job at, with Amazon in, in, in a fulfilment warehouse in a former mining community sufficient? Or is it, you know, the fact that uh, we were in concert um, up in the northeast uh, last year, uh, we went to an area where there was a steelworks, right? And the steelworks has been flattened and taken away, and it's now uh, a bunch of uh, it's a retail park. That's not the same. But I would argue it's a safer line of work, healthier. Well, yeah, but um, it's they're not the jobs on a fulfilment of you know creating things. So I think you know I understand that we'll we'll adapt, but at the same time, I think that AI represents a potential laying off of about thirty to fifty percent of the jobs that we currently do. And that is a much bigger thing than than one sector of industry being shut. So we have to watch this space. But yes, you know, if anybody who's ignoring the impact of AI, um, well, you can't. No, I'm not, and I'm I'm absolutely not saying we should ignore it. I'm not. I'm just saying the 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 the, the thinking around AI is certain people looking forward and thinking right. Actually, what's going to happen is that there's going to be so few jobs then actually you know ai does the creates the gross domestic product and the and the money and then we're all in a in a sense on welfare to some extent and you know probably be rewarded for what we contribute towards society in a wider sense so you're saying there'll be more free time 
Yes, but you'd have to be. You can't have free time if you can't eat. So you have to. You know, it's some some countries are looking. I think the Swedish are thinking about this, actually giving everybody a guaranteed minimum income. Yes. Now you see that would work, wouldn't it? And yeah, actually... but that, but that, you know, in the culture of the UK at the moment, where everyone's benefits scroungers and you know, tarred by that in in on, in the right wing press, that would never never wash. But that's ultimately what AI is going to do, because so many people will not no longer have the jobs that they currently fulfil, and you know, people wonder where it's going to go. Well, if you're in the legal industry, you're a paralegal, yeah, or conveyancing. Let's say conveyancing. It doesn't have to be done by a human anymore. It can be. It could all be done by AI, absolutely all of it, because you know you get all the searches done by AI. Mm. All the all the inf- relevant information for a property comes in. The actual process, it'll just be AIs talking to each other about when the when the exchange is going to happen, all that sort of thing. It really won't require. A f- it'll require a fraction of the people who are currently involved in it. It, it you know it will sweep away an awful lot of people unless you physically have to do something you know like uh, a surgeon who has a skill yeah but even that even that is moving i know with robotics and 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 lasers and all that sort of stuff we just don't know where it's going to go no we don't know and and also you're making the assumption that society will be the same as it is now where people have jobs and work and earn money capitalism will change it could potentially change the whole model well of course it will but what i'm saying is is that we're not actually having that headline discussion about what sort of society we want as a result of this you know, well they we, should be no well we, exactly but actually we're all what we're doing is just reacting and and you know some people are getting on on the act and and using it for what benefits them right yeah and and in the creative side of things, people are using it to create plots, write books, whatever. Um, and they think they've been terribly clever doing so. Uh, and indeed, I've talked at length about narration. And in fact, in America, this is very interesting because there's a really, really big movement within the narration industry to... They're actually starting to... Some of the companies that I've been liaising with, and uh, I ought to mention I've just got a, a big project which has been given to me by an American company, which is fantastic this week um uh, which i'm very much looking forward to but they're all gathering ganging together and creating a movement which is narration should be human not ai so they're, they're kicking against the likes of spotify and apple and all these other places that are creating ai narrators they are you know there is a movement in america which says you know it should be a human voice delivered by a human who consciously recorded the work yeah and it's interesting is it because that could be quite a substantial force against ai however market forces as i was talking about the capitalist system market forces may be stronger than that Uh, always always is because you know ultimately if you're the person who is stands to benefit from doing something cheaper and making more money from it that's what you're going to do that's human nature that's the nature of capitalism so anyway, look, we ought to we ought to move. Do you know on. what we should do before we move on? Just one mm. more point because it's it's come to me. I was there's an article in the bookseller about nonfiction, and it was saying that there's a thirst at the moment for nonfiction that um, helps us cope with the massive changes that we're going through at the moment in terms of climate change and AI. We need to write a book about this because this is an important subject, and there's nothing there's nothing to go to right. to what the future will look like. We could write a book about it, or 
we could create a series of podcasts about it. And I <laughs> and I do have in my We do talk enough about it, don't we? Yeah, look, I, I'm going to this is gonna be a big project and you know, where where do we find the time for it? But I would like to do some curated podcasts which deal with this issue. Yeah, we have we have spoken about this this week, so we may put something in place. Well, I we started just... working on a guest list that people I'd like to interview. Well, I asked you to do that, so that's brilliant, yes, okay. Um, and I started that. <laughs> what we'd probably try to do is get about 20 different perspectives. We'd record a load of interviews. We wouldn't run them as interviews as such. We would do it as I would have done at the BBC, which would be, right, let's look at this aspect of, of life. And who knows, we might actually be able to sell it to BBC Sounds because I was talking to their boss last week. So, Do you know what? That's Anyway, we should talk about this later, because that's a brilliant idea. But it's neat, you know, we need, I think there is a need within the author community, and I think this would be a very valuable thing that we could do, and we can work together on this. Uh, we would present the cases for different aspects of AI and in the creative industries, and, and, and kind of use it as a, a crystal ball to look forward to what could be the impact, what are the issues, and give it a really considered treatment. But that's quite a bit of work. Yeah. So we'll, 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 part we'll plan it. We ought to mention, just before we get to Kim's interview, Kim Booth, uh, we have an extra episode this week we for you. We do. A special midweek episode. Because we ought to mention that we are celebrating the launch a couple of weeks ago of The Bad Neighbour by Jenny Ensor. It has done really well. Oh, we, amazing. She's number one in two of the charts. That's that what we're going to say. We're yeah. number, you know, so a couple of the subcategories within Amazon has reached number one. And um, we launched the books. The first time we've ever done this, a lot of other indie publishers do this. They launch a book at 99p. It does work in terms of the number of books into people's hands. Mm. No question about it's that. It's done really well. Yeah, It's done really well. And it's ranking pretty it's, strongly for, for one of our books, probably one of the strongest rankings we've ever seen. So in that regard, it's been a, an eye opener. It's been a, a valuable experiment, but we are doing a special. We're going to talk about it in more detail, aren't we, in the special? So. Yes, we are. And what it is, you'll be able to hear some of The Bad Neighbour. I know, it's very exciting. Taken from the launch uh, party that uh, Jenny organised in Read London. by actors. Uh, yeah, some professionals. Yeah, not like us. <laughs> no, not like Muppets like us. Anyway, let's get to our interview with Kim Booth. Now, uh, as we mentioned, a retired detective inspector. When um, Kim sent his sort of CV of the things he worked on, he's worked all over the world in investigating fraud and all sorts of crimes and is similar to when we've spoken to Graham Bartlett and to Bob uh, Bridgestock, you know, as former uh, coppers, they, they all bring a certain wisdom knowledge of human behavior and a sudden i i i had this sort of feeling of you're in good hands even if you were the villain across the table in an interview you're in good hands because he was a scrupulous about the way he approached the job yeah there's something that all these people have in common and there should be a word for it but there isn't a word in english language i don't know what it is it's almost like you feel yeah exactly you feel you're in good hands you feel safe we just talk, just chatting to them now, even though you. I, I I would crack quite quickly under interrogate. I would just sort of go, yeah, cough up all the information, and actually, this is actually something that he talks about. Did you know that fraudsters can't help themselves? They love to show that they, you know, that they've worked something out. And one of the tricks that he used during this interview, you'll hear it in this interview, was to give them a false piece of information to make them feel big. When well, they could contradict you know, the, the, it, yeah, yeah, and that would open them up. It's brilliant. Anyway, let's go. You'll find this fascinating. This is Kim Booth. 
Well, it's a lovely way to spend a bank holiday. Is to speak it's to Kim Booth. <laughs> it's a sunny day up here, actually, for a change. It's pretty sunny here as well. Yeah, it's been a remarkable week for weather. But yeah. uh, that's not all we're here. We're here to talk to you, Kim, as a former detective inspector with vast experience, particularly in Lincolnshire, but uh, it's taken you all over the world. So uh, we're talking to you in the context initially, I think, about your feelings around crime fiction, because you are a consultant for authors, uh, to get it right. Yeah. How often do you feel UK crime fiction gets it right? I think I think that authors sort of get a plot in the head and go for it and write the book. And it depends how, how keen you are on police procedurals. What is your knowledge? Um, because they can be quite complex. If you're going to do, I've just finished writing a book about uh, a serial killer, and you're you're involved in search warrants and surveillance and things like that, and all these things have to be done correctly, as 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 the law dictates. There's no short way around it. I think a lot of authors do a lot of work and they get it right, but when they um, when they hit something they're not sure of, then they need a bit of advice, and that's where I come in. So it's it's not bad. Some are, uh, shall we say, like my school reports used to say, could try harder, <laughs> you know, or, 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 or words to that effect. But, yeah, generally they're very keen. I mean, when you get to the likes of uh, the more uh, renowned authors, I read their books and I think, yeah, they're not far off the mark. Though Obviously, it depends on doing your homework. If you do your homework... <laughs> You know, when you've got somebody you can talk to, then it's it's better. But when somebody contacted me and said, uh, "I'm writing a book uh, about some murders," what what's this police and coronavirus act about? Can you tell me? Well, I mean, we need to do a bit of serious homework there. I mean, there is a lot pulled into the into paste, as a call. Yeah, search warrants, evidential seizures. It's a massive act. You know, so I think they really need to do a bit of homework before they get to the depth of writing that book and thinking where does pace come in because it comes in all all, all along the all along the narrative really. Mm. Mm. So in a way, it provides a spine for someone who's trying to plot something out. Then actually, rather than being a hindrance and something you've got to go and revise, it could be a very very useful tool because it gives you that that line that you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even, even some of the TV programmes, it's a bit frustrating you are, when you have quite a bit of knowledge about it because I sit there and watch the TV, I think, mm, I don't think so somehow. <laughs> you know, whereas some of the better ones, I've got some some sort of consultants about that put them on the straight and narrow. But that's depending on if your consultant is 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 fully sort of aware of police procedures and, and the Misuse of Drugs Act and... And, and things like that, and and other other parts of the act that need to know about. But yeah, on the whole, um, the average reader or the average viewer wouldn't really make a big deal about it because if you haven't got knowledge, they're not going to notice things so much. It's only when you get to the likes of people like me or people who've got quite a bit of knowledge, you, you do see things that have been overlooked. So are you like my mum? When my mum my was a nurse and when we used to watch Casualty, 
It used to be a nightmare watching it with my mum because she'd just say, oh, they'd never do that. Oh, what's that doctor think he's doing? Oh, you wouldn't give that patient that. Are you like that when you're watching police procedural drama on TV? It's it's, it's a bit similar because my wife was a policewoman. She did 12 years of policewoman. My son's a police officer, so I don't really have to make much of a voice because somebody else in the room will usually do it for me. But, yeah, you you do see these things and... It, it is a bit frustrating, but you can't blame people because it's a big topic. You know, yeah. So, but it don't get too, it don't get too excited. You know, you get used to it or immune to it. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I, I feel the same way whenever I watch something involving the military. Even though I wasn't in the military, I'm sort of uh, sort of very amateur military historian around Second World War and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I just, you know, when I saw the Crown. Uh, yeah. Series two, I think, or even series one, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And they had Lancaster bombers flying over uh, Windsor Castle in 1940 yeah. when the first ones rolled off the plant at 1942, I think it was. I mean, that just, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, madness. So that stuff r- riles me up totally. Yeah, I can fully understand that. But, I mean, it's a big, it's, you know, these sort of crime fiction and all that, and cosy murders, cosy crime, it's a big area. You know, it's a big area. Mm. And readers actually know quite a lot now. I, I find that, you know, if, if someone, one of our authors makes an error, it might not necessarily be somebody who's had work experience in that field, but sometimes the readers know <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it is a big area and it's growing, you know. So I, I thought, I thought when I, when I retired for the first time, I, I uh, previously I dealt with a fraud, and um, this fraud was about half a million pounds worth. And this woman and her husband conned this couple out of half a million, and um, and the woman, the offender, purported to be the illegitimate daughter of the Duchess of Argyle, and built an identity around that. And she met this elderly couple. With her, with her husband, and uh, and basically they played it through, and they conned this couple into into believing that they needed funds to sort out an inheritance and all this business. It was all set in Glasgow and the, the Isle of Jura and all that. Yeah. And um, yeah. and towards the end of it, they you know we were laughing and joking. I mean, the the fraud lasted six years, nearly seven years. And she was milking them for money over seven years, coming up with various stories and excuses. And um, and towards the end, I mean, obviously, when you're dealing with something, a fraud, you get to know people quite well because, you know, you're going into some of the innermost secrets and who the relatives are. And t- I mean, the, the statement was nearly 200 pages, which took us quite a long time to do. So you get to know them quite well. They say, oh, you know, it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation, but it make a good book or a good film, you see. And I thought, okay, fine. And they... But we discussed it a few times, and they said, "Oh, you go. Will you write a book and all that?" Yeah, all right then. I've never written a book before, and um, and so what happened was, was I wrote this book, but they wanted it published after they both died. That was the condition. They didn't want, you know, didn't want to be questioned about it or anything like that. So I wrote this book, and uh, and their daughter sort of vetted it, and they were happy with it, and um, and they uh, they just didn't want any part of it you know, to carry on if it was published. So I published it and um, sort of self-published it. And uh, it went down quite well. But there is such a story involved. I mean, people talk about fraud. 
but they don't realise what damage it actually does to the individuals or the victims. I mean, I've known people who have committed suicide after they've been involved in a fraud. You know, they've lost the total wealth. They're in their advancing years. So the prospect of generating that income again is very slim because they're, they're probably retired and not working. You know, so I think one thing that is overlooked with fraud is the, the damage it does to people, you know, and uh, and they can't recover it. Whereas if it's a robbery, if you if you robbed in the street, somebody's pinched your Rolex and you've had a thump or or, or been hit over the head, you know, it's 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 a case where it's, you know four or five months later your your injury will have gone, you might have got yourself a new watch, you know that you're feeling a bit better, they might have caught the offender or whatever, but with fraud it stays with you all the time because you can't get out that position. That the fraud just put you in. Mm. And I also wonder whether it's something to do with the fact it's a it's a more subtle crime in a way, and you might yeah. feel a bit of shame almost that you've been duped. People do feel embarrassed. Yeah, mm. some really sad cases where I've spoke to victims, and you've got you've got to reassure them that, that you know they're not a fool. You know they're not stupid. I mean, I've found some, I've come across some very intelligent people that have been, been victims of fraud over the years. You know, I mean, I can remember of a, a doctor. Um, I, at one time, I had a retired detective sergeant who was um, victim in a romance fraud. You know, so it, it, it can happen to anybody, especially if people start getting involved with what I call sophisticated fraudsters, people who have committed a fraud but done quite a bit of homework. Mm. Yeah, prepared it. They've got. I mean, I remember the, the one one um, fraud I dealt with. This chap was was conning people, and he um, very confident talker, very smart, well turned out, and uh, and he was selling these uh, investments which were fraudulent. And um, I finally caught up with him, um, but in the interim period, he was he was talking to people and giving them his card. You see. Yeah, if you want any more information, you ring me. I'll sort the investments out. And his name was followed by um, uh, QBE. So we had QBE after his name. And the, the Vic, some of the victims were obviously well educated and well connected to QBE and all this. And I said, QBE, C K B E. I thought, I can't find a QBE. Anyway, we finally arrested him, got me sat in the interview room. I said, right, okay, then. <laughs> I want to talk to you about da da da. We have the interview, and I said, oh, "By the way, one one small point." He suggests. I said, uh, "What's QBE after your name?" He says, "Qualified by experience." Ah, oh, love it. All uh, right, I'll remember that one. I want to put that on our business cards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> feel free, feel free. Now that is that's fascinating. One of the things I think that a lot of authors. If I'm honest, but when we when I look at submissions, sometimes get wrong. I think is the interview process, in the well, sense of the, the dynamic, the actual right. dynamic, and uh, you've done hundreds, I should think, thousands potentially. Thousands, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what is it like? How intense is it? And how much? How much? I, I, what I'm interested in is the person sitting opposite you, your suspect. Mm-hmm. Your all your witness or whatever mm-hmm. the person you are interviewing how much control do they really have over the way that it goes because you see in a lot of crime fiction you know the the bad 
person, the the, the protagonist, uh, antagonist rather, is someone who is you know immensely clever and ties everyone up in knots. And yeah, lots of yeah. I don't get, games, but I don't get that they... impression. I think once you've got to that stage, they tend to open up a bit quicker. I don't know whether that's the case. Well, first, uh, firstly, um, you know, I've been involved in training detectives in the past. I always tell them that when you're taking a witness statement, witness statement off somebody, you're recording a story. It's like writing a story. You've got to get all the information that that person is proffering and get it written down, you know, in a way that people can understand it and juries can understand it. And it has to be the words of the person you're talking to. It's no good because barristers will cap, you know, capitalise on these things. It's no good using language that a witness wouldn't, wouldn't use, you know, because at the end of this, their story, it's not my story, I'm just recording it from them. So with regard to the interview room, you know, there's so many, so many people sit there and go, no comment, I don't want to answer, and all this business. Now, that doesn't bother me because if you've done your homework and you've got the, got the evidence you need, and they don't need to say anything because at the end of the day, it's going to go to court, hopefully, and they're going to get convicted. But but a lot of these people, I always find fraudsters are more talkative, you know, because they are slightly arrogant. They like to show off. And especially if you feed them a bit of information that is not correct, they want to correct it. Interesting. Mm, right. They always want to put it right. So I'm not saying that you're deliberately give them information that's incorrect. But it's like, if you sit down and you say to a burglar, um, you broke into this house um, and you stole this, that and the other, and we know you got in through the back window, when in actual fact he got in through the patio door, it boosts them up. You know, it mm-hmm. makes them think, well, he's got that wrong, we're on a winner here. You know, so this is important how the officer conducts themselves as does the offender. Now, the, years ago, they used to say there used to be what they call body communication leakage, which is when you're interviewing, if you look up to the right, you're lying. If you're looking down to the left, it's something else, all this business. That can only be a guide. Mm. Sometimes you come across people in interviews that are arrogant. They they want to run the show. So it's very important that you've got to get across to the person on the other side of the table who's in charge. Because I've, and fraudsters are renowned, certainly sophisticated fraudsters, for leaving an interview room after an interview and being in possession of more information than when they went in. Mm, interesting. You know, so, so, so you've just got to be a bit careful. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a like learning to ride a bike at the start. You've obviously got to read your suspect. Yeah, you know, what you make of them, what they're like. You do a bit of homework. Are they violent? You know, if you can find cases that they've been involved with before, you can learn more about them. But a lot of them sort of, I would never go no comment. Never in a million years go no comment. Ever. And because you get to, and I've never, unfortunately, not yet, I've been on a jury, but I know juries are thinking, well, if he's going no comment, what's he got to hide? Exactly, yeah. Basically, I've spoken to jurors after cases that I've come across as I've been doing my sort of duties, sat down, oh, I was a juror at Crown Court, say, how did you find it? Oh, I enjoyed it. No comment. Well, why Why is he no comment if they're asking him normal questions? Why do they need to go no comment? 
<laughs> sometimes it's the solicitor will say, go no comment. Sometimes it's the, the person who's on the table. But it's a matter of reading. You've got to read the situation. It also depends on uh, what evidence you're going to give them mm-hmm. when you sit down with them. I mean, personally, I won't give them everything straight away. Yeah, but it must take a lot of mental stamina conducting these interviews because you know that if you do uh, put words in their mouth or something like that or, or, or stray from the path, the barristers will pick up on it. Of course, of course, and I would expect barristers to, you know, yeah. that's that's what they're paid for. But, yeah, there is, a, there is a protocol, I mean, which has obviously changed over the years. Nowadays, you know, you can't be what they consider oppressive in an interview room towards the person to the other side of the table. I mean, when I first joined sort of 35 years ago, all sorts of things were happening, you know, but, but pace, pace has been a good thing. I, I, I think pace is a good thing. It's brought it, into, it brought it into order, really, you know, and I have no problem with, with you know, being, having CCTV in the cell passage or CCTV in the car on some occasions and in the charge room because it works both ways. Yes. Yes. You know, so yeah. when you're in that in that room and you are facing somebody who you suspect of, I mean, you've you've covered murders and and and, yeah. and, and, and undercover, you know, and uh, investigated them. So you've got somebody potentially who's committed the worst crime there yeah. is. Mm-hmm. How do you divorce your feelings towards this person who you strongly suspect is going to be the person you're going to, you know, uh, is going to get charged and and found guilty of this? Does can you be dispassionate and, and, and pull it back? You just have to learn that over time. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, um, I've done some really bad cases, certainly involving juveniles. Um, and at the end of the day, you've got to pull it aside what the person is like the other side of the table. I mean, um, you're there for that case. I'm not I'm not interviewing this person who murdered a 16-year-old with, a, with a, his football scarf, which is a case I dealt with years ago. You know, you've got to forget that and you've got to say what we're here for today. And sometimes there is no doubt, absolutely no doubt, that the offender will try to wind the investigating officer up or try to provoke them. And you've just got to say, you know, that's it. This is what we're here for. We're talking about this. And that's the name of the game. It can be difficult at times because some people do some terrible things. You've only got to look in the paper at some of these. The one recently where the husband and wife and the child died in the last couple of weeks. You know, and he had 130 injuries and he's, what, 12 months old. I mean, there's no justification for that at all. But you cannot risk anything. You can't risk losing a conviction by something that goes wrong in the interview room. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued... Because um, reading your bio, as you'd mentioned it before, you've worked across jurisdictions in the sense you've had been on cases which have taken you abroad. And this yeah. is often a theme that comes out in books where there's a culture clash or, you know, yeah. that's not how we do things here in whatever country it is. Did that ever – was that ever a problem for you when you, were, when you were working on those sort of cases? No, not really. I mean, funny enough, I've been to – Quite a few countries like, you know, the Bahamas states, Canada, you know, uh, Japan, America, working with the various uh, agencies like the Mounties and the FBI and Secret Service and bits and bobs. Funny enough, they they hold the British police in quite high regard. 
you know, they, they, which, which I found a bit surprising, really. Um, but they do, and they, they all think, are oh, you from Scotland Yard? You know, have you come from Scotland? No. Do you know the Queen? No. <laughs> um, of course you know the yeah, Queen. And, and, and I've been quite impressed with the other countries. I've been very impressed with the Japanese police. I was going to ask you about that because I lived there for a couple of years. So what was that like, working? That was very, they're very, they're a bit a bit detached at first when until you get to know them. I mean, we had translators, interpreters with us. Um, but when you're going to know them, the karaoke mad, you know, the police are karaoke mad and golf. So did you do lots of beer drinking and karaoke in the evenings? We did, then? Well, yeah, the end, I said, to, I mean, I think I had 13 staff when we went over there. It was a joint investigation with the Sheriff's Fraud Office. I said to my staff, you will eat the food and you will, <laughs> you will do karaoke. End of. And they did, and, they did, and it all down, went down very well. But they were very professional, I thought, really professional. But then the FBI were. You know, I've got a couple of FBI, uh, a man and wife team that we work with in, in the States, coming over in a fortnight to stay with us for two or three days on the way up to Scotland because their daughters go to university here. You know, so very professional. Um, some countries are a bit manana. If you get what I mean, you know, well, mm-hmm. we, want, we want to go search the house now. Well, I'll do it day after tomorrow. I mean, it'd be unfair to name the countries, but well, we need a bit quicker than that, you know, because when you're abroad, it's the, the taxpayers' pennies and all the rest of it. You want to get it done and get back. Mm. But yeah, so, but the Japanese, very impressed, very impressed with the Japanese. You know, got to be good at 97% detected rate, aren't they? And, and when I lived there, I mean, it was. Um... 25 years ago now, but I can remember they were proud of the fact they had a relatively low crime rate. And they'd, they'd yeah. always say, oh, we don't have guns here. And we yeah. don't, it's not like America. <laughs> no, no. And it's, um, you know, and when I, I was there not too long ago, and the, you know, the families are out picking litter up off the street on a Sunday. Mm. Not much graffiti about, no sort of criminal damage. Yeah, I was impressed. And work-wise, very good work ethic. Work ethic. Oh, Completely, really yeah. Good. I mean, know, there's a word for dying of overwork in Japanese. Yeah, we, could, we could learn one or two things from them. Yeah, but, no, uh, I agree. It went down very well, and wherever I went, the, the police, the UK police were quite well regarded. You know, so can't complain of that, really, can you? No, because you're visiting dignitaries, I mean, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> and it's like that. interviewed a lot of witnesses in Japan, and, um, and also New Zealand. New Zealand. Oh. Were very, very, very British pro there, you know, and the and the police were, you know, and um, it was refreshing to see what the thing about the Met these days remains to be seen. But there you go, it's not getting <laughs> the best press out of. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's touch on that then, because that was my next thought, really, around um, the difference between. You know our metropolitan forces, particularly the Met in London, and the force that you served in in Lincolnshire. Uh, you know, and I have some experience of of rubbing shoulders with Sussex and Cambridgeshire in my career as a journalist, and yeah. indeed Devon and Cornwall, which is a completely different kettle of fish, really. <laughs> um, but but you know there is a there is a trope within fiction and indeed drama, and I, I and I dare say in reality that the Met conduct themselves in that sort of superior way when they're dealing with um, more rural constabularies. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, um, 
to put it in layman's terms, we will be considered the poor relations who who don't sort of get involved with the big stuff like the metals. You know, when in reality, um, you get into the rural forces and there is some very interesting offences committed and detected. There's some very, very competent detectives in these rural forces and they do some excellent work. You know, and as Lincolnshire has done over the years, I mean, we had we had Beverly Alley, who uh, who sort of caused a lot of controversy. Um, and there's another nurse at the moment where there's allegations she's been she's a court allegation been killing babies. You know, and Beverly Alley was Lucy Letby, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And Beverly Alley was a difficult case to deal with. I wasn't involved in that. I was involved in another one at the same time. But the uh, the SIO and the staff uh, obtained a lot of evidence by by statistics. And it was one of the first cases in the UK who was involved in statistics, whereas they worked out who was working at the time, who had the method opportunity, and all the rest of it. And they did an absolute first-class job. We had a... Uh, we had a, a serial killer a few years ago that that was uh, detected after his second murder, no doubt thinking about his third. You know, so it doesn't all happen down the Met. You know, Cambridge years have some very good jobs, you know, and... Um, well, so on. So on yeah, being the big so, one. So on, yeah, that was a very tragic case, and a very interesting one, that. There were some very interesting points came out of that. You know, like Bedfordshire, I think it was Bedfordshire or Hertfordshire, had the husband who murdered his author wife, if you remember, and she was found mm-hmm. in the septic tank at yes. the premises with the dog. You know, so my my line is that it doesn't all happen down the Met, but then they have quite a lot of challenges mm. down there. They've got a very transient population, very mixed population, you know, whereas some of these other forces haven't. So to be fair, they do have some rather unique challenges that they've got to rise to. Yeah, it's difficult to have a copper's nose, isn't it? When when things are shifting around, you know, you, in the I suppose in the sixties, you knew who the gangs were and who the faces were. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But it's, I mean, it, it is very transient these days, and you see it now and again where uh, a person they've had a murder trial or a murder inquiry, and they've got fingerprints, they've got DNA, and I've got one in mind at the moment, and the person in some UK record because they've come from abroad. And we don't know who's about. We don't know. The problem is these days, even in Lincolnshire, we don't know who's living here. You know, and we don't know who's coming across on the boats. You know, there's already been a couple of IS members um, been discovered on these boats. And this is so transient. We, we just don't know who's about. So as it makes crime very difficult. You know, when you've got, we've got a murder inquiry in Lincoln, where, in Lincolnshire, and we've got DNA and Fingerprints, Cobble Doctrine, this bloke was murdered in his house in a place called Lound, nearly decapitated, and they used his cash card and they, they decamped and we're left with a dead body. And we've got DNA and fingerprints to Cobble Doctrine, but he's not he's not on UK record. Mm. That's if he's still in the UK after the murder. Yeah. You know, so to be fair to some of these forces, and, and the Met have that sort of problem a lot. You know, the most difficult ones to detect and deal with are stranger murders. Yeah. You know, and the Met get quite a few of those, and they're not easy. 
They're not easy to deal with. At least in, in where I am, we've got more of a captive po- population. But down at the Met, you just don't know, do you? I mean, they could be anywhere, come from anywhere, and go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Be committed, and it causes problems. So I'm not going to sit here and criticise the Met because they have got challenges that other police forces haven't got. Internal and external, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Let's talk. turn to your writing then. Um, does your career as an officer impact the way that you approach a writing project? Do you, Absolutely. I mean, do, do, yeah, I was good. <laughs> do, do you, is it, have you got your sort of method and that you follow? Well, um, what, one, one of the, the latest book I've just finished, it's, there's a lot of incidents in it that have actually happened. You know, that, I mean, I wouldn't say in the book that happened, happened, but I've used them because they happened in the past. You know, um, yeah, so it does help like that. My, my, my writing is very sort of, um, very sort of, I think one of the reviews was, I could smell the coffee at the police station. <laughs> That's, and I thought that was quite accurate. I like that. Yeah, I thought that was quite accurate. And I thought, well, if I can get that across to people, and my intention is to also wise the reader up as to why things happened. You know, mm-hmm. read read a lot of things about various incidents and that, but I like to go into it a bit more and explain why it's happened and how these things can be dealt with, you know, how I've dealt with them in the past. You know, so, oh, yeah, it's a great help. It's a great help. There's a lot of readers, there's a lot of uh, authors must think, you know, cracky, I should have done time in the police force to get that that sort of knowledge. Level of detail and knowledge, yeah, you know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, one of one of our writers who is it he's always um praised for his accuracy has never been in the police force, Brian Price. Mm. So um it's it's just interesting, isn't it, that some some people are very good at that, even though they've never had that experience. Yeah, I don't know how yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean I I've seen Brian Price's books. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, so yeah, all pounds on elbow. But there comes a time when the, the problem is, I see, is that people are pre- prepared to criticise when they don't know the full circumstances. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, and I, I will defy anybody. If somebody wants to um, confront me about my police procedures, accuracy, then bring it on. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't dare. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've... And the thing is, you get these big murder cases that get dealt with and people go to prison, great stuff. But there is a lot of smaller cases that the police deal with um, that are just as important to the people who are the victim. Yeah. You know, I mean, in crime, it has a very, very, various effects on people. Um, like I dealt with um, an 89-year-old woman who lived with a Down syndrome son in a, in a flat and the flat kept getting burgled while they're asleep, and um, and the uh, pension was being stolen. The lad worked at a local sort of centre where he made stalls and all that, and his wage his wage packets were being stolen during the night, and the house ransacked. And the local policeman came to me and said, "You know, can you give us hand? Can we sort this out?" 
And we did, in the end, there's a bloke, a neighbour who was setting up youths to burgle the house and all that, and he, he, he went to prison. But it was such a big thing for them. Mm. Massive, massive thing. You know, whereas statistically it's burglary, you know, but it's more than a burglary to that lady and her son, you know. Mm. Um, so it's not all about, you know, murders and robberies and that. The smaller members of the community want that service as well. And that's one of the, it sounds a bit of a corny line, actually, but that's why I joined. Mm. Yes. It's the people, because you're dealing with people all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I get a great satisfaction putting people to prison who deserve to be in there. Mm. Yeah. I've got to ask that question. I mean, what is the, that feeling of, you know, you get a case across the line and they get convicted? Because um, I've, I've been on those steps of the Crown Court when... As the a journey, you ought to be. Yeah, so, you know, I'm waving my microphone like this and, and, and sort of going, you know, getting the statement from the SIO who yeah. has uh, yeah. been successful. And there is this sort of, I've always observed, I suppose, a mix of the professional elation that it's it's worked out and you've got what, you've got the result that you, yeah. that, you, that, you, that you worked for. But at the same time, trying to sort of rein that in a little bit with the way that people address the microphones. You mean they don't? Yeah. Yes. No, 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 yeah. No. I mean, I don't think it's very professional to stand outside, crank on, say, so, "Yeah, you know, another one." <laughs> you know, save that for the police station, chaps, when you get there. But oh yeah, I mean, I've the, the worst part is um, is waiting for the jury to come back. Yeah. Or if the jury send a question. Oh. Yeah, Things like yeah. that. If they send a question, they're giving it some serious thought. Mm. If it goes past eight hours, I mean, I've been in there when they've been convicted after two or three days, but eight hours you start thinking, well, you know, and you, and trying to read the jury. I've sat there in court and, and sort of trying to look at them and see what they're doing, are they making notes and all the rest of it. But it's a great feeling when you put people down, you know, because it's going to save all the people a lot of grief. Yeah. Isn't it? You know, so, oh, yeah, I think it's... And, like, surveillance. I've done a lot of surveillance over the years. And somebody, somebody once said to me, surveillance is the next best, next best thing to having sex. <laughs> I said, how do you work that out? Well, he said, you sit there watching people doing things wrong and they don't know you're watching. Yeah. And it's a great feeling, you know, especially when you catch them. Yeah, yeah. Although you must, you know, you need an iron bladder and um, I have a lot of patience. Say the copy well, and donuts. You have to make, make, make arrangements for that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's different areas of police work, isn't it? You know, I never fancied sitting in a police car and doing people for speeding. I never fancied, you know, walking around with a dog that bites everything, including blue surge, you know. So I just fancied being a CID. I want to be a CID man, and that was it. And so... I spent my career in the CID in various parts, you know, like the Drug Squad and the Regional Crime Squad, which is National Crime Agency now, and the Fraud Squad and Economic Crime Unit, you know, because it's uh, just what I fancy doing. Some people are quite happy being dog handlers or in a big traffic car or sat on a great big motorbike. It never really did anything for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got one final serious question before we get to Rebecca's random question, if I may, um, which is from the writing point of view, what does does it um does it give you as much satisfaction uh career pleasure as 
when you were uh, a detective or w- what sort of things does it give you when you're when you're writing your books it gives me a challenge it gives me a challenge to write a set of circumstances in a book that dovetail together that's the challenge so if somebody's reading my book then they understand what's happening they understand where this has come from they understand where uh, how they get how you take your inquiries to lead you to the offender. You know, so it's, yeah, it's not as challenging. I'm not running up multi-storey car parks to see what car somebody went in and all that. I'm getting a bit too old for that, you know, or chasing people through the street. But it's a different type of challenge because at the end of the day, these stories have got to dovetail together. Mm. You've got to, you've you've a start, the middle and the end, and the reader's got to follow it all the way through and understand how the evidence is taken to that conclusion at the end. You know, so, yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's a bit of a challenge, but I always said I'd write a book, and that, that first one I did, um, The Fraud, uh, when I did that, and then with, with reading other people's books, other people who are submitting them or the one them read, I've read them, I think, yeah, okay, I'll have a go at this, and that's it. That's where we're at. good for you. <laughs> Uh, Kim, it's been really fantastic. Uh, well, now um, it's time to turn the tables. So, yeah. in a way, uh, imagine you're in the interview room. Uh, I should do the tape for the tape. It's Rebecca Collins asking the random question. <laughs> it's a coincidence <laughs> that we were talking about karaoke because my random question is what is your go to karaoke song and why? And can you sing it as a bonus point? <laughs> uh... Funny enough, you'll laugh at this. Funny enough, the one I, I used to do on on the, on, the, on karaoke with the Japanese, and they loved it. Mind you, you can be really awful at karaoke, and they make you feel fantastic. I mean, I did it with some detectives in the nightclub in Tokyo, you know, and everybody's clapping, thinking, Christ, did I ought to be on, on one of these TV programmes, these talent programmes? I mean, you can be absolute rubbish, and they will really, really be enthusiastic. So basically, mine was one of mine, uh, which I thought I knew there'd be karaoke there, so I thought I'll learn one before I go. It's <laughs> not too not too stressy, not too high notes, but I can carry it off, and that's fly me to the moon. I fly me to the moon. That one, yeah, yeah. So uh, I carried that off. Fantastic. Fantastic. What would yours be? Ah, uh, oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, I sing in a choir occasionally, so uh, my party piece with that is the solo. Uh, I sing it solo anyway, uh, with the gospel choir behind me. Uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking what I'm looking for on it. You too. That's a good one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all right. Um, and I haven't yeah. tried to do Crocodile Rock by Elton John because someone else wanted us as a group to do it. We were drunk, and it's so fast. I don't yeah. know the song that well, yeah. but it is—it's a lot of words very, very quickly. Forget it. I was just lost, so that so, was—that would not be it. But yeah, I and yours, Rebecca. Well, I used to actually go as well as Japan. I did a lot of karaoke in Japan, and the choices was generally quite limited. So things like the Carpenters, um, the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, and I don't actually—I used to. There was a couple of Japanese songs I would try and sing, and they loved it. If I tried to sing in Japanese, yeah. they absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah. And there's one I do remember that went... Um... Oh, here we go. <laughs> do you speak Japanese? Uh, squishy. Just a little bit. 
I don't think I'll try the Japanese one, but my my British one is if I had a hammer. If I had a hammer, yeah, that, yeah. hammer in the morning, yeah. hammer in the evening, all over this land. Yeah, yeah, but um, it's it's interesting. It's uh, I have no regrets of what I've done over the years. You know, it's been a good journey. You know, and um, and I think it's time to write a bit and give some people pleasure. Brilliant! Yeah, what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful yeah. way to to, uh, to close things off. Let's. Um, so, if people want to find you online and 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 seek out your books, but also you know your services as as a consultant, where can they find you? Uh, well, I I um, I now do it with a um, a company called uh, Consulting Cops, which which is on the internet. Um, Consulting Cops, which is run by an ex. Uh, uh, police officer, senior police officer from the Met. Um, my handle on um, on uh, Twitter is KB Author, K lowercase or KB Author, and that's about it, really. You know, I um, just plod on and see what happens and talk to nice people like you and get it out there, you know, and um, basically answer questions what people would like to ask. Mm. Yeah. Well, Kim has been an absolute pleasure. Kim Booth, QBE. QBE. Yeah, QBE, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah QBE. There's a lot of stories like that I can tell you. Yeah. Well, we'd love, to, uh, we'd love to hear more at some point. But yeah. uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I hope you've enjoyed it because I have. And uh, I'll be interested to see how it, how it goes down. I would love to go to karaoke with Kim. <laughs> I mean, he's got a very fine baritone voice. I bet he has. And do you know what? Last week you met another ex-copper. We can't say too much who he is, except for he's Lewis Hastings. Yes, I did. We went. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Look, Lewis has been was one of our first signings, and all these years that he's been with Hobeck has been on the other side of the world in New Zealand. Now, sadly, he had to come over for his mother's funeral back to the UK. Uh, but it was great to to, uh, to see him and his wife. And um, I, I was gutted because I couldn't come because I'd arranged to go to a cat cafe with my mum and my boys. Yes. <laughs> okay. You know, he's not bitter about that. But we, 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 met, we met in rugby. Uh, a little cafe in, in, a, in a park. We had a great, uh, great afternoon. It was just great to sort of um, finally meet. And, um, you know, we uh, are very pleased to say that uh, Lewis and two further of our authors are going to be taking part. As you may have noticed on some of our social media and our emails and whatever, we're currently celebrating National Crime Reading Month from the Crime Writers Association yeah. by dropping the price on certain books to 99p, 99 cents. And so Lewis is in the next tranche. Yeah, so it's Lewis um, and Seventh, his first book. Um, it is also going to be Ollie Jarvis and the Genesis Inquiry. And the last one in the next tranche is um, the first George Shamet book. Bodies in the Water by yeah, A.J. Aberford. Aberford. Yeah. So check those out. We've had uh, we've had the cosies out to uh, 99p. And, uh, I mean, they, they've all done quite well. So um, Overheard Dead Bodies also rocketed up the charts as a result and swindled following shortly after too. So yeah. it's been great. Yeah, no, it has. It has. I mean, it's slightly depressing that, you know, 99p seems to be the price point where you can um, you can flog things. But at the same time, you know, that's the nature of the industry at the minute. But uh, we are going to do that with some other of our books later. So hold on to this podcast. Listen to what's coming up next. You 
if you haven't signed up for our mailing list, which is where you find out details of these yeah. things, please do go to our website, www.hobeck.net. Right, this week, what have we got coming up? Uh, I've got my birthday. Ah, uh, yes, and a book publishing on your birthday. Yes. Rendered Incapable is publishing on your birthday, which is great. You By were, you were a bit AB like... Morgan. <laughs> How could you possibly launch a book my, on my birthday? <laughs> my thunder's been stolen by a book. No, but no, 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 it's going to be a double celebration. What great, no, what greater present can there be exactly. than a new Hobart book? I know. On my birthday, I'll wrap it up for you, shall I? Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> We've only got fifty so copies in the kitchen. That's yeah. the next Quirks book. So the, over her dead body at ninety nine p. The also. next, the next Quirk files. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're very excited about that. If you like sausages, you'll love this book, which is terrific. Vegetarian uh, sausages also available. Not having those on my birthday, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, stop it. Yeah. So it's my, it's my birthday. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on it. Uh, the, uh, the other things that we've got this week. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, we've got two things. We've got the new, we've got the extra podcast yeah. coming out uh, for my birthday as well, I think, if I if I can get it organised. I could sing happy birthday to you on the podcast. Oh, God. Right. We're not doing that. <laughs> um, play it on the guitar. Learn it on the guitar. I could do it on the keyboard. Yes, I know you can. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, and other other developments. Well, as I say, I've got this new project coming in for narration, which is very exciting. And uh, it is it's a whopper, 17 hours long. Uh, but it's a, for a new client, which I'm really excited about because uh, a few months ago after I finished all the legionary or during the period when I was uh, recording all the legionary books, I started to approach American companies as a narrator. And a couple have taken me on, so I'm on their books. And this is the first project that's come from that, that effort, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Not least because the Americans have a set fee. You, you can't go below a certain amount, and so you actually get more money from American narration than you do from the UK. And I'm excited because it'll mean you'll be in the booth for a bit. And I can yeah, dance around the I, kitchen I also mentioned what the project and... is. Well, I, it's an Oxford classic, The First Philosophers, and... Those of you who know me um, knew that I sort of flirted with actually doing a degree at Exeter University. I did get it. What do you mean flirted? You did do a degree at Exeter well, University. Well, I did. I, well, I can't say that, you know, it was a conscious effort um, because I was doing radio all the time. But uh, I did get my degree in ancient history. And so it's not a subject I'm unfamiliar with, should we put it that way, Greek philosophy. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that one. It's yes, going to be great. me too. So, but that doesn't quite start next week. So next week is a, a, a big week from all sorts of other bits and bobs which have kind of uh, in danger of escaping if, yeah, we, if we don't get on top of it. it is very, it's going to be a very busy week. I think we ought to go against our natural characters and plan. <laughs> right. Okay. But only after I've been to the cricket today. So uh, That's very exciting. So my brother, um, he has a... Um, he's a spy, sort of. He's mm. a <laughs> customer spy. He's basically a secret shopper, but a secret shopper sort of downplays the job, I think, because he actually does quite a lot of um, interesting he, work. He wears body he? cams, doesn't he? He wears of... body cams, yeah, and he, he travels all over the country. And I'd love to do that, Jeff. I know you'd be really good at it as well, because you ha- you have to be good at um, playing a part. Mm. And I ne- I never thought this would suit him, but he loves it. He absolutely loves it. He's very good at it. So we're going to county cricket and find out what their catering's like. So for free, all four of them. Yeah. Two I'm boys, not going because there's two adult tickets and that's fine. I've got the data myself and I'm looking forward to that. 
um, yeah, so they're going to have food and drink and um, be treated really well, and it's it's a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> it is. It is. For nothing. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I can't believe it's happening. It's like an early birthday present. It oh, did is, I mention actually. it on my birthday? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologise. Right, well, look, if you want to find out more about what we do, go to our two websites, archpub.net for our publishing services side, and then for Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of four different genres, then go to our website, www.hobeck.net, where you can find out du- details of Julie Anderson's joining our uh, roster of fantastic authors, and also look out for this extra hopcast that we're putting out this week, which celebrates the launch of The Bad Neighbour by Jenny Ensor. So uh, that'll come out soon after this podcast. But thank you very much indeed for joining us. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're joining us for the first time. And uh, it's more like this every week. Uh, <laughs> what more could you want? Uh, after all, all, after all, we are in the top 10 Mystery podcast, yeah. Yeah, according to whichever outfit it was. Feedspot or whatever it's yeah. called. Yeah, well, you know, can't knock it. No. Top 10. I don't know why we're not number one, but... Well, we're... we did actually get... We were 13 and then we went up to 10, so yeah. we went up slightly. We're creeping up. We're I creeping need to up. check again. Get so, uh, yeah, check out the website. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you a wonderful and... Creative... Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Spirit.